These words come from the burial service of the Anglican Book of Common Prayer. Excuse me. For those of you who hadn't heard, um, Peter and Jamie Rumley's little boy, Nicholas, who I believe was four months old, uh, was found dead in his sleep uh, Friday, I believe. And so there will be a funeral service here uh, this afternoon, uh, very shortly after our worship here together. And these words come from the burial service of the Anglican Book of Common Prayer from 1559. Man that is born of a woman hath but a short time to live and is full of misery. He cometh up and is cut down like a flower. He flieth as it were a shadow and never continueth in one stay. In the midst of life we are in death. Of whom may we seek for succor but of thee, O Lord, which for our sins justly art displeased. Yet, O Lord God most holy, O Lord most mighty, O holy and most merciful Savior, deliver us not into the bitter pains of eternal death. Thou knowest, Lord, the secrets of our hearts. Shut not up thy merciful eyes to our prayers, but spare us, Lord most holy, O God most mighty, O holy and merciful Savior. Thou most worthy judge eternal, suffer us not at our last hour for any pains of death to fall from thee. These are the kinds of things we should be thinking about today. Thank you. I originally preached this sermon on July 19th, 2009 upon the death of Elizabeth Rasmussen almost, almost three years ago to the day. And I think these are things that we need to hear again. I want to speak to all of us in light of the suffering that God has brought to the Rumley family this week. And I want to help us to think and feel about this in a humble, godly, compassionate way. And I want to help all of us who are parents to talk to our children about this in ways that will strengthen their faith and point them to God, their Father. And I want all of us to broaden this out and to think about other people who are suffering right now in all kinds of ways. Of course, Rachel has lost her husband, Glenn, not too long ago. Carol, who's not here today, Canfield, lost her father not long ago. Josh lost both his grandmother and grandfather within a few days of each other not long ago. Marilyn Huntoon has lost friends and relatives in this past year. Some of you are struggling with the pain of your own sin and the consequences of that sin. Some of you are dealing with the fact that you've been sinned against by your father, by your husband, by some other man. Some of you cannot find a job, you're depressed, you're fearful, some of you are sick, some of you, a few of you, are old and facing the pain and the, and the struggle and the fear of that. And what I have to say today applies to all of us in all of these situations. So what does the Bible say to us in a time like this? What we need in a time like this, what we need in any time of suffering and sorrow is a firm place to stand. 
We need something solid under our feet that we know will not shake. We need to touch bottom to find a solid rock to stand on. And so I want to give you a place to stand and a place for your children to stand just with three simple things. Number one, it should not be this way. And this is something we must remind ourselves over and over again. This is not the way the world was supposed to be. All of the suffering in this life comes because this is a broken world. Death comes because this is a broken and cursed world. And death is an enemy. Thank God it is an enemy that will be finally and utterly destroyed by the life and power of Jesus Christ. But death is an enemy. Christians should hate death. Not in the sense of dreading it. But we should hate death because it is the result of sin and Satan and it is our enemy. Even when the one who has died is a Christian. Even when we know that he is basking in the eternal pleasures at God's right hand right now. We should still grieve at the reality of death because death is a result of sin and it was not supposed to be this way. Now when I say that death is a result of sin, that does not mean that those who die young are worse sinners than you or me. It means that we live in a world that has been twisted and messed up by the consequences of sin. And it means that even when a little child dies, even a little baby, he has died because our father Adam rebelled against God and in Adam all die. So what should your response be when you hear the death of a little child? You should weep. Do not use your doctrine to rip out your humanity. Do not let your doctrine make you glib in the face of death. Your doctrine should teach you that death is an enemy that is yet to be crushed. Your doctrine should teach you that this is not the way it should be. Your doctrine should teach you that death is not a natural part of life. No, it's not. And those who tell you that kind of junk are lying to you. Death is not a natural part of life. It is not something for you to, to, to come to terms with. It is not something you need to be at peace with. You don't make peace with an enemy. And death is an enemy. You don't make peace with, peace with an enemy like death. You patiently wait for the day when your enemy will be completely crushed. And yes, that day is coming. Scripture says in 1 Corinthians 15, 25 and 26, For Jesus Christ must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. So yes, Jesus Christ will abolish death, but that hasn't happened yet, and death is still an enemy. Godliness will let you weep in the face of death. We know this beyond a shadow of, of a doubt, because that is what Jesus did. When Jesus' friend Lazarus died, he was not a stoic. Look at these words from John eleven thirty-three to 36. 
And most of you would know the story. Lazarus has died. Lazarus has two sisters, Mary and Martha. They're weeping. They know that their brother has died. Jesus comes to meet them. And he stands with one of Lazarus' sisters. And it says in John eleven thirty three, when Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled and said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. Jesus is not a cold and hard God. He is not a stoic who is indifferent to your suffering. He is not beyond all of that. He is not a sadist who enjoys making people suffer. When he stands in front of Lazarus' tomb, he weeps. He hates what sin has done to his world. He hates death and the pain that death brings. He hates the sadness of Mary and Martha as they mourn the death of their brother. And he enters into it himself. He hates the pain that Peter and Jamie and their family are suffering right now. He hates the pain that you suffered when your father died, when your mother died, when you lost the baby. When that man sinned against you, when your husband left you, when your wife left you, when your father left you, when cancer came and killed your husband, when your family was destroyed, he hates it. He is deeply troubled. And he knows the pain that you have suffered because he has suffered it too. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He knows all about it. So do not let your doctrine make you glib or stoic in the face of death. Weep with those who weep. That is what Jesus did. And he wept even when he knew that death is not the end of the story. This is something we know as well. And not just in the sense when Jesus was standing in front of Lazarus' tomb, not just, yes, I know that someday resurrection will happen, who knows when, but someday. He knew that he would raise Lazarus from the dead minutes from now. And yet he stands there and weeps. Do not try to be more spiritual than Jesus Christ. If death is an enemy, then treat it like one. So we stand there. It is not supposed to be this way. It's okay to cry. This is awful. You stand there. Secondly, where else do we stand in a time like this? Number two, God is sovereign. In other words, God is in complete control of all things. God Almighty has supreme power and authority over all things. Ephesians 1, 10 and 11, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. All things. Romans 8, 28, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. God does everything he wants to do. There's nothing that God wants to do that he can't do. Job 42, 2, 
Job rightly says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Psalm 135.6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth and the seas and all deeps. God even controls calamities and disasters. Isaiah 45, 6 and 7. I am the Lord and there is no other, the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. These words that we read recently in Amos, as we're reading through the book, Amos 3, 6. If a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people tremble? If a calamity occurs in a city, has not the Lord done it? And of course, God controls life and death. Deuteronomy 32, 39. See now that I, I am he, and there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal, and there is no one who can deliver from my hand. Psalm 139. 13 to 16. David says, For you formed my inward parts. You wove, wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me. When as yet there is not one of them. Job 1, 18 to 22. Listen to these words. While he was still speaking, another also came and said to Job, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell on the young people and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Life belongs to God. He gives it, he takes it away. According to his infinite power and wisdom... And he is in control of all things. He's in control of cancer, Amtrak trains, and the breath of little babies. Now, do you understand how destructive you can be to those who are suffering with what I just said to you? Do you understand how destructive you can be with all of those passages I just read to you? If you've embraced the superficial glibness that often comes to evangelicals in the face of suffering, or if you've embraced the coldness and fatalism that come often to Reformed Christians in the face of suffering, then you can use these passages in very harmful ways with the Rumleys and with anyone else who is undergoing a tragedy. It sounds like this. God is sovereign. Don't you get it? Just trust him. Get over it. Don't you believe in the sovereignty of God? 
What a cruel way to bring comfort to God's suffering children. Christians who are going through deep waters of suffering do need to remember the sovereignty of God, but never as a cold, theoretical, philosophical abstraction because that will never help them. Think of it like this. Where should we put the emphasis in that sentence, the true sentence, God is sovereign? Where do you put the emphasis in that sentence? Should it be on the word sovereign? God is sovereign. I don't think so. Even though that's where we often put it, it's easy to turn the sovereignty of God into a debating point or a theoretical, abstract, philosophical statement. And there's a time for getting the facts right about those things. But what do we need right now? What do Peter and Jamie and their family need right now? Christians who are going through terrible suffering need to know the God who is sovereign. It is cold comfort to hear that God is sovereign if you think that God is mean or distant or harsh or arbitrary. What comfort is that? But it is sweet comfort to remember that God is sovereign when you remember what God is actually like. Psalm 34, 17 and 18. Here's what God is like. The righteous cry and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Psalm 36. Your loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like a great deep. O Lord, you preserve man and beast. How precious is your loving kindness, O God. And the children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They drink their fill of the abundance of your house. And you give them to drink of the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. Psalm 72, 13, he will have compassion on the poor and needy, and the lives of the needy he will save. That God is sovereign. Or Psalm 86, 15, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. Psalm 103, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. Psalm 145, 17, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. That God is sovereign. The God who is kind in all his deeds. Even the most difficult ones. Lamentations 3, 31 to 32, the Lord will not reject forever, for if he causes grief, then he will have compassion according to his abundant loving kindness. Our God is the God of Psalm 23. 
which is not a, a wall plaque. It's the word of God, and it's true. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That God is sovereign. In the middle of tragedy and suffering, don't talk to people about the sovereignty of God. Instead, talk to them about the God who is sovereign. Talk to them about the loving, merciful, compassionate, faithful, gracious, sympathetic shepherd who is also wise and powerful beyond all imagination. Talk to them about their father. That's where suffering people can find hope and comfort. Not in a cold, abstract doctrine, but in a father who loves his children and in a savior who will not break a bruised reed or snuff snuff out a smoldering wick. God is good and reliable and worthy of our trust. Not only when good things are happening to us, God is good and reliable and worthy of trust even when bad things are happening to us. Stand there. Stand there. And third, it won't always be this way. It won't always be this way. There's coming a day when the enemy death will be abolished, crushed. Again, 1 Corinthians 15, For Jesus Christ must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. It will be abolished. 1 Corinthians 15 51 to 57, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is coming a day when these words will be true. They're still true, but we will see them. There's coming a day when This description from Revelation 21, we will see it with our eyes. Revelation 21, 1 to 7, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, 
The tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe every wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. That day is coming. It won't always be this way. There's coming a day when the curse of death will be done, when all things will be made new. Wait for it. Wait for that day. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is your place to stand. This is not the way it's supposed to be. God is kind and good and wise and merciful and completely in control. It will not always be this way. Stand there. Help Peter and Jamie and their children and their family to stand there. Help your own children to stand there. Help Eric and Helen and their children to stand there. Help Rachel to stand there. Now there's still more to say at a time like this that is very important for us to hear. You too will die. In Adam, all die. Hebrews 9.29, it is appointed for men to die once. And after that comes judgment. We are so glib, so superficial, so stupid, so naive, willfully so, so foolish, We're like the the people that James talks about in James chapter 4. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live. And also do this or that. If the Lord wills, we'll be alive tomorrow. If he doesn't, we won't. Because we're just a vapor. It's gone. So fragile. It takes nothing to kill us. A virus that you can't even see. A bacteria that you can't even see. A cell that you can't even see. Or a truck. Anything. So fragile. And we must use events like this to remind ourselves of the frailty of life and the certainty of death. And in times like this, we must help our children think of their own frailty and the certainty that they will die someday. It might be 70 years from from now, it might be tonight. You're not doing your children any favors by hiding this from them. The pastor, Jonathan Edwards, who lived in the 1700s in New England, 
was a faithful man and a good pastor and a good father. And he wrote to his nine-year-old son upon the death of a child in the community. His son, his nine-year-old son, was away from home, and a, and a boy died at home. And Jonathan Edwards wrote to his son to tell him about it. And here's what he says to him, nine-year-old son. He says, the week before last, on Thursday, David died, whom you knew and used to play with and who used to live at our house. His soul is gone into the eternal world. This is a loud call of God to you to prepare for death. You see that they that are young die as well as those that are old. David was not very much older than you. Remember what Christ said, that you must be born again or you never can see the kingdom of God. Never give yourself any rest unless you have good evidence that you are converted and become a new creature. We hope that God will preserve your life and health and return return you to Stockbridge again in safety, but always remember that life is uncertain. You know not how soon you must die and therefore had need to always be ready. Speak to your children about their need to be ready to die. Make sure that you are ready to die because your life is a vapor gone. But you can have the certain hope of eternal life. In John 11, when Jesus is standing before the tomb with Mary and Martha, weeping himself about the death of his friend, Lazarus, remember what he says. John 11:25 and 26, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? He asked. Do you believe this? Do you believe in Jesus Christ, the resurrection and the life? Are you sure? Have you put all of your hope in him as your savior, your king? If you haven't, come to him. Come to him. He is a willing, able savior, powerful, even for your sins. Let's pray. Dear Father, have mercy on us. Humble our hearts. Give us humility and wisdom. Teach us to number our days. But teach us more so, Lord, to cling to you, to run to you for mercy and salvation. We do pray again, Lord, for the Rumleys and for all these other families who have tasted the sting of death in these, this last year, these last few years. Have mercy, we pray. Give them great hope in the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.